Talking Feds is sponsored by our friends at Total Wine & More, rewarding curious connoisseurs with a wondrous selection of wine, spirits, and beers. Hey, Harry here with an exciting update to share. You can now find us on the Spectrum News app. The Spectrum News app provides local stories, weather, and information that matter to you and your community. Download the Spectrum News app on your Apple or Android device and follow Talking Feds wherever you listen to podcasts. Now here's our episode. Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials and special guests for a dynamic discussion of the most important political and legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. The Biden administration has been in office for six months, and as is often the case, in contrast to its policies at home, where it exercises at least limited control, it finds itself on the international front reacting to a series of challenges and crises. The last week alone brought two major eruptions in our backyard in Cuba and Haiti, both calling on the administration to weigh the risks and benefits of everything from military intervention to a hands-off policy. And as usual, it looks as if the U.S. will cautiously tack to some middle ground. Biden's obvious ambition clearly on display in June's G7 meeting to return the United States to its position of preeminence among world democracies has given rise to a massive government-wide effort to supply the COVID vaccine to countries around the world who lag far behind the benchmarks of the developed democracies. So far behind that the administration may be risking a humbling failure. And as always, Russia or perhaps it's more accurate to say Russian President Vladimir Putin, lurks on the sidelines looking for opportunities to increase his profile with mischief directed at the U.S., indifferent to the suffering they might inflict on his own people. With our former fearsome adversary no longer a top-rung economic or even military player, the U.S.'s ability to deter Putin's outlaw behavior requires ever greater ingenuity and multilateralism. To assess the state of international relations six months into the Biden administration, we have a stellar group of foreign policy experts. And they are... Dr. Richard Haas, the president of the Council on Foreign Relations, a position he's held for some 19 years. He served also as director of policy planning for the Department of State from 2001 to 2003, receiving the State Department's Distinguished Service Award for his work as the United States Special Envoy to Northern Ireland. He is also the author or editor of 14 books on American foreign policy, most recently, The World, A Brief Introduction. Dr. Haas, or may I call you Richard, thanks very much for joining Talking Feds. Please do call me Richard, and I'm happy to be with you. Laura King, a global affairs correspondent for the LA Times, where we are colleagues since 2016, and previously the bureau chief in Cairo, Kabul, and Jerusalem. She also was a correspondent for the Associated Press covering foreign affairs, and she has a long and distinguished history as a foreign correspondent for many different outlets, with postings in Japan, the Middle East, and Kabul. Laura, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And returning to Talking Feds, Fiona Hill, the Robert Bosch Senior Fellow in the Center on the United States and Europe in the Foreign Policy Program at the Brookings Institute. She recently served as Deputy Assistant to the President and Senior Director for European and Russian Affairs on the National Security Council from 2017 to 2019, and also served from 2006 to 2009 as the National Intelligence Officer for Russia and Eurasia at the National Intelligence Council. That's quite a mouthful. But we are thrilled to welcome you back, Fiona, to Talking Feds. Thanks so much, Harry. Great to be here. All right, let's just jump in and begin with 
Russia. President Biden's summit last month with Vladimir Putin had a notably cool tone. Biden left the meeting saying he is, quote, not confident Putin will change his behavior, not the sort of diplomat speak you often hear from world leaders, and saying the world needs to diminish Russia's standing in the world. So let me just start there with a general question. Biden's stance, of course, was a stark contrast to the near fawning relationship President Trump had forged and something of a slap in the face to the imperious Putin. But obviously Putin can still make trouble for the U.S., maybe not as an economic or military power, but basically as an outlaw. So is it a mistake for Biden to take this sort of arm's length skeptical tone with Putin? Fiona, can I ask you to start us out on that one? Well, it's not a mistake to take uh, this approach because, I mean, basically Biden has been realistic here about the limitations of trying to forge a new relationship with Russia. In fact, when you think about it, it's hard to forge a new relationship with Putin because he's been around so long. I mean, in fact, uh, Richard recruited me uh, to the Brookings Institution back in 2000, just as Putin came into office, you know, to be the fellow looking at Russia then. So let's just say Richard and I (laughs) have been following Putin for as long as he's been around. And this is getting into his 21st year now. And Putin is, you know, basically telegraphing that he um, intends to stay around out until 2036. And part of the problem for Putin is that, well, it sounds like it's an advantage, but it's actually a disadvantage is there's no meaningful opposition because he's decapitated it. And the person that really could give him a run for his money inside of Russia, he's got in jail having tried to assassinate him and failed. That's Alexei Navalny. So Putin is constantly trying to outdo his previous selves to keep himself as the centre of attention at home. And that also means being the centre of attention abroad. And that can't be achieved by being the elder global international statesman, but more of the kind of bad boy of international politics. Because So basically, Biden is absolutely right that Putin is not going to change his behavior. And the quote that you had at the beginning about that behavior diminishing Russia, I mean, that is really part of the dilemma is how do you put the spotlight on that behavior and manage that behavior? We're in a confrontation that we're constantly managing with Russia when the Russians are always going to be acting out to grab the attention. Now, just in, I guess, the last day or so, there's been this purported leak of information from the Kremlin suggesting that they had documentation implying that they were trying to help Trump in the 2016 election. You know, so basically, the Russians, every time they kind of fade to grey a little bit in the news cycle, something happens to put them back again, and that is deliberate and intentional. So Biden is going to have to deal with this. And, you know, trying to act coolly towards that is probably the sensible thing to do because you're going to have to keep a cool head when you're handling it. The problem then is signaling too much to the Russians at the same time. You've got this dilemma that you always have that you signal what you're doing. (laughs) You know, it kind of becomes harder to do it. And actually, I would say that the biggest risk that Biden has right now is signaling too much that the United States priority is China. But it's, it's not about how you manage Russia. It's just that you want to manage Russia because you want to get to the main action, which is China. And that's pretty dangerous. Other countries have done that too. Japan, several years ago, for example, decided, not surprisingly, that China was their existential threat, the biggest existential threat that they've had since World War II. And as a result of that, they tried to court Russia. And we saw that that didn't work out very well. The Japanese, the Germans, the French at different points, not so much about China, but have all decided that they wanted to change the nature of their relationship with Russia to be able to move on to other things. And all the way in the past, we've tried to do the same as well. We wanted to kind of get Russia off the main stage so we could concentrate on what was going on in Iraq or Afghanistan at different points. We wanted to get them off the main stage so we can focus on China increasingly over the last several years. And Russia and Putin want to be on the main stage because they have to be. And if Putin is going to stay around until 2036, as he says, he has to show that he's the guy. He's the guy that is getting all of the attention abroad so that he can basically keep a grip at home. And plus, they also have to deter the Chinese from thinking of them as anything other than an important strategic partner. So I think we're in a bind here. Biden's in a bind. And he's just going to have to be very careful about that signaling and about the management of this confrontation. And others agree. Yes, it's a bind. And you can imagine in the bind trying to signal in a somewhat muted way or on two different levels, perhaps implicit in what Fiona's saying is much of what he's communicating is trying to get past Putin in a way, maybe even to the Russia people. 
And it is true, I think, that our use for Russia now is kind of instrumental, but they are a pretty unreliable. Let me just put it this way. They always seem to cross us up. There doesn't seem to be any way to bring them to heal as a good citizen, even in their own interest. Is that wrong? And Laura or Richard, is your view at all different in terms of our basic public stance to them? Well, I would say that having somebody like Fiona Hill describing this relationship is just so full of valuable insights, because I would remind everyone have the most remarkable real-time front row view of the interaction between then-President Trump and Mr. Putin. And I think that with that as a very low bar going forward with President Biden, yes, you're going to see, of course, a very different dynamic, but many of the same underlying problems remaining. I would just say a few things. Look, Mr. Putin is a spoiler. He wants no part of the so-called Western liberal order. Indeed, he sees it as the greatest threat to his, his priority, which is his own continued rule. So he gets up in the morning and he is uh, suspicious and then some. That hasn't changed and that won't change. Secondly, he has real tools he can bring to bear and he's willing to do that, whether it's cyber or military force. Look at what he's still doing in Ukraine and Georgia. Look at what he's doing in Syria. He's willing to use military force in a truly reckless, inhuman sort of way. In that sense, he's unrestrained. And he's, he's further unrestrained because he's not integrated. Unlike China, he's not part of the global economic order. There's not a lot he can lose. By the time you've sanctioned him as much as we have, there's not a hell of a lot left to sanction. I actually think Mr. Putin's greatest liability is his own policy or lack of it. Indeed, if he were to leave office today or when he leaves office in five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, and I think it will only happen when he's incapacitated by either illness or death, I think he's got a truly problematic legacy because he has not built a functioning country. There's no real economy. The demography is not good. The ratio, if you will, of territory to people is not what you would uh, want. And the reason is he's so afraid of allowing independent centers of capacity and decision-making and wealth to grow up that he's stifled his own economy. He is, if you will, a a repressive person at home, president at home, and he's a foreign policy president. But his real liability, I think, his real weakness is what he hasn't done domestically. That's simply a fact. But in the meantime, he's dangerous. And he's dangerous simply because he is willing and able to do things that could give us a real pause. And I think the challenge for the Biden administration is, is how do you deal with that? I think the president was entirely right to meet with him. I've never thought diplomacy is a favor to bestow. It's a national security tool. Hopefully it's wielded intelligently. And the question is, can you in any way shape Mr. Putin's calculus? Can you get him to stop doing things or to do certain things differently when it comes to cyber, when it comes to Ukraine, when it comes to the Middle East? We will find out. That, to me, will be the test of the relationship. He's not going to be transformed. He's not going to be changed in any strategic sense. The question is, can we get him to pull in his horns in certain areas simply because he calculates that if he were to continue doing things that give us real heartburn, he would pay a price that would go against his own fundamental interests? You know, that's a real important point. How can we get collective action to deny him the opportunity to do many of the things that he's doing? Because as Richard's pointed out to me, he's pretty ruthless. He's going to be aggressive. He is testing all the boundaries all the time. Just around the time of the Geneva summit, they were sending long-range bombers on a mission out from the Russian Far East to Hawaii, just to emphasize they're not just a regional power. That was a point that they always wanted to make after President Obama said that Russia was a regional power after the invasion of Crimea. They want to always remind us that they can have some global reach and they can hit us from all kinds of different sides. There was, of course, solar winds. There's all the reports of all the other hacking. We know that President Biden handed over a list of 16 areas that should be off limits um, and critical infrastructure. I quipped at the time it should have been 1600 because basically what they're trying to do is find every little thing that we didn't mention, every loophole, every every little portal that they can go through. Because, as you know, Richard said, he gets up every morning trying to think about how we can push our buttons again because he has to. Otherwise, there's nothing doing at home. And I think that is going to be the big problem. The only way to change the behavior is to stop the possibility of that behavior, because they're always going to be trying to think of something new. So you reveal them poisoning Alexander Litvinenko through Polonium with these hit squads that the GRU, the the Russian military intelligence has. 
who reveal them then moving on to Novichok, banned weapons-grade nerve agents. Once you do that, they'll try something else. I mean, now we don't know whether Havana syndrome, these um, microwave weapons are them. We suspect it's likely the press is full of these stories at the moment. They seem designed to harm people. If we find out it's them, then there'll be something else. It just is basically showing that the focus now on subversion, covert action, and really trying to hurt us to get attention all the time. And that is going to be the real problem. So we need to have collective action at home and we need to have collective action abroad with as many allies to push back and to deny the ability to do some of these things. So that's the real problem. Can we do that? The denial? Because Biden can't do it on his own and the US can't do it on its own either. It does strike me in the common view. I think a lot of us still think of Russia as a kind of power that it's long since ceased to be. And as you and Richard and Laura also say, you know, economically, it's super contracted, even militarily. And the things you mention are the kind of tools of an outlaw state, a lot of them almost on the level of sniper attacks. But, and this is where I wanted to move, it does seem to me that this new area of cyber warfare and cyber attacks is a potential game changer that is equivalent to acts of war. It strikes me as a very big problem for the U.S. to try to figure out what to do about it and if they even are able. So I'm hearing you, Fiona, suggest there's only one way with a bully and that's to persuade him that the reprisal will be worse than the event two-part question to anyone. Do you agree that the cyber attacks really are a new kind of potent threat, a new ace for him to play is with a handful of sevens, eights, and nines otherwise? And is there a viable pushback just in what in the old bad Cold War days used to be thought of as mutually assured destruction? If I could jump in first, because I'd actually really like to hear from Laura and Richard about some specific operational things about this, because it's not just cyber, it's the information war. So it's the kind of cyberspace writ large. And I think that's part of our real dilemma from the old days. And Richard's been thinking about this. And honestly, the, the media, you, Laura and others, play an important role here too, because a long time ago, Putin and Russia declared information war on us. We're going back now a considerable period. And they've really managed to dominate that information space in some pretty creative ways. I and mean, we saw in 2016, the creation of fake personas, the hack and release of emails, all kinds of disruptive efforts, and just strategic leaking of information as well. Again, suggesting that they've got compromising information on Trump. Well, I, I almost said something kind of rude there, but like, no surprise. <laughs> We've right. all got compromising information on him. And up in New York, the prosecutor's office that they have too. But they're just trying to kind of play this game in the information scarce. Look over here. Look at us. Come over here. They know how the media works in the United States. And they know that by manipulation of the social media space, they can pull everybody else in too. So it's kind of that blurring of the information war and the cyber war. Because some of the most damaging things have not just been the probing of our systems, electoral systems, the security systems around critical infrastructure, command and control of the nuclear system, but of our, our minds, you know, the kind of the mental mindset and the public opinion. And that's also now in that cyber domain and the, on the internet and creating false content, spreading conspiracy theories. Look, we're doing a lot of this ourselves. But they have found this an incredibly useful domain to play in. And it is part of their strategy of warfare. You can call it hybrid war, the war by other means. In the old Soviet playbook, which Richard and many other people studied back in the day in its totality, really also focused on softening up the enemy territory through information war and any other means. And of course, obviously, the emergence of cyberspace is a, is a major domain, along with space itself, underwater, the worries that we have about them attacking undersea cables, all of these different domains, Russia wants to know, or wants us to know rather, that it is a major player. And we shouldn't just be thinking about China. Russia is where a lot of the action is at. And it's really how we handle that from the level of the strategic perspective of the military, the NATO, our allies, how we think about this from the point of view of government and all of society, but also how we handle it in the media is pretty critical. And I don't always have you know, answers for the best way that we can approach this. And I would certainly agree that things like disinformation and ransomware are part of a continuum rather than any kind of a, a, a new phenomenon. It, it does change incrementally over time or dramatically over time. But 
I'm going to be curious to see the reception of measures being rolled out by the State Department. And I wonder if others have thoughts about whether it and how it can be dangerous to take measures that are described as being decisive, but yet seem insufficient, whether that can actually be more harmful. Let me say a few things here, because Fiona has laid it out well, and Laura's just asked an important question. I think we've got to break it down. The fact that the Russians are doing espionage in cyberspace, well, we should be and we are as well. And what we ought to do is make it hard for them to succeed and shame on us if we don't. So there's all sorts of things we ought to be doing from protecting our systems to better cyber hygiene and the rest. It's way too easy for the Russians, the Chinese, and everybody else to get inside our systems. And that's on us. This question of political interference is something very different. And there's no norm out there, really. Or if there's a norm, it's one that's widely ignored about such things. So... I don't think economic sanctions in the end. So so my view is if we can't get the Russians to stop, then we ought to press some buttons of Mr. Putin's. Again, his his biggest concern is his own continued rule. There's things we can put out there that might complicate his life somewhat, but we also ought to let him know that this sort of activity is inconsistent with any sort of relationship with us. I'm not sure he cares. You know, when it comes to using cyber attacks, that's something very different again. And cyber can be a weapon of mass destruction. Definitely. Depending on what, how it is used and against what. If you want to target dams and hospitals and nuclear power plants, it's a weapon of mass destruction. That's got to be hands off. And again, if they don't, then again, one, we've got to pardon our systems. But two, we ought to, we ought to, yeah, he's so dependent, for example, on his energy sector. So my response would be, and with one caveat, that we should then demonstrate our ability to hurt him where he is our most dependent, but also vulnerable. So I think that is something worth exploring. The only thing we've got to be careful here is that escalation does not necessarily serve our purposes. We've got an integrated economy and society with the military and everything else. We are far more wired in many ways than is Russia, particularly when it comes into the economy and the, the financial sector and the rest. So a world of unconstrained cyber warfare is not a good world for us. What we don't want so much is escalation dominance here. We want to basically, if I can use arms control sort of language, what we want to do is, again, try to shape Russian behavior and get them to pull back. And again, I would think, how you mentioned the idea of mutual assured destruction, threatening specifically attacks on their most important economic assets, which are oil and gas. And if we have to, at some point, demonstrate our ability to do that. But I would think we probably have to go down that path. The interesting news in the last few days, and Fiona probably knows a lot more about it than I do, is that there are some signs that some Russian cyber efforts have gone offline the last few days. And the question is whether that's real or tactical, or lasting. I don't know. I, so I, don't, I don't know how to, how to read it. I don't know whether we've taken them offline. They've taken themselves offline. I don't know what, what Mr. Putin's role in it. I would simply say, and Fiona contradict me if I'm wrong, that I believe we need to act from the assumption that what goes on in cyberspace emanating out of Russia is something Mr. Putin has significant influence over, indeed, probably control. I don't think there's a lot of freelancing going on. And my own view is we ought to approach cyber-related activity the same way we would terrorism. And if you recall, after 9-11, we announced we hold responsible not simply terrorist groups like al-Qaeda, but also the governments that harbor them and support them. I believe our view on cyber ought to be exactly the same. So we're not simply after this or that Russian group, because these groups can come and go and change their names by the hour. We ought to hold the legal authority responsible, and that is Mr. Putin and his government. I really do agree with that point. And it ought to be, that should be something that's internationally underpinned as well. It can't be just the US, because look, Russia hacking groups and ransomware attacks, and as Laura was saying at the outset there, they've been all pervasive. And some of the attacks that Russia directed against Ukraine, for example, the NotPetya malware that they introduced into systems a few years ago, took out the National Health Service and hospitals in the UK, really kind of stopping people from having emergency treatment and operations, everything from like FedEx operations and, you know, major companies. There were billions of dollars worth of damage done to global operations as a result of just, you know, one directed malware attack, for example. So all of these things, and also they've hacked the Olympics. (laughs) We knew that they did that. The Swiss uh, labs, the OPCW, Organization of the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons in The Hague, on and on and on and on. The German Bundestag, the French elections, they're doing things everywhere. 
So we do need to take collective action here to be able to do what Richard says. I do think there really is a risk of escalation that we have to be very careful about. But I think that it's instructive that, again, the Russians are aware of that too, because I don't think that they want to trigger off, as Biden was saying as well, not just a cold war, but a major kinetic hot war with the United States. They want to have a confrontation that they manage rather than us managing it. <laughs> they want to be on their terms, but they don't want to end in a, in a free-for-all. I mean, again, I think this is all for signaling and to show how important they are, not with the purpose of having some outright war with the United States. I mean, the problem that we have now is what is the point of all of this? All of the things that we're talking about here, the primary reasons for us even having this discussion is what they are doing. This is not the Cold War. This is not some kind of standoff of systems in the way that it was in in the past. We don't have any territorial aspirations, contrary to what the Russians keep saying all the time. We're not trying to carve up Europe. They want to have a kind of a sit down in a way and have a truce in a kind of a new rules of the road. But the world has changed and they're still kind of acting out in an old fashioned sense, focusing on territory, territorial control in some ways and, you know, playing an old game where we all want to move on. You know, I think that's really right. We used to talk about the term Kremlinology, trying to penetrate the obscure center of Russian government at a time when the stakes were high. It is a very different Russia, but it leads to this problem that you've mentioned that you can't assume the normal self-interest of a national leader or the national interest because it has so much to do with his personal agenda, country be damned. Let me push to the ultimate problem, and that is, you mentioned in your first response, Fiona Alexander Navalny, Biden has said in the strongest possible terms, if he dies in prison, you've really gone to a whole different place. And that you normally think, even in the bad old days, that would be enough to stay their hand. But with, I mean, not, I, I don't want to call him a madman, but with somebody whose agenda is, as you've described it, so atypical and personal, you can see it, right? So if he takes that step, if he goes on that third rail, What's the farthest we can go without having the kind of escalation or return to a permanent cold or hot war that is, among other things, just not in our interest in 2021? So let me say something here, because I I disagree a bit with how the Biden administration is framing all this. And to make so much of American foreign policy, this uh, it's democracy against authoritarianism. Look, we're not going to change Mr. Putin's system. It is what it is. We rejected rollback in the early years of the Cold War, 70 years ago. Rollback now is not going to happen because of what the United States says or does. And by the way, I'd say the same thing about China. This idea that the principal framing of American foreign policy is democracies versus non-democracies, I think is fundamentally flawed, in part because we're not going to fundamentally change them, in part because we still need to limit and avoid confrontation with them where possible, in part because we want to keep open certain possibilities of cooperation with them on a North Korea or Iran or Afghanistan or something else. Mr. Navalny, I hope he lives. I hope he is uh, free to exercise and involve himself in political activity. I think it's highly unlikely he gets that freedom so long as Mr. Putin is in power. And indeed, he may die. Putin's tried to kill him. And Mr. Navalny could die because somebody murders him or he could die for natural or illness-induced reasons. He doesn't get the medical care he wants. If that happens, as awful as that would be, it tells us who Putin is and who, what his regime is. Yeah. But we're not going to refuse to negotiate nuclear weapons limits with Mr. Putin as a result. And we shouldn't. We're not going to refuse to come up with some type of de facto arms control arrangement over cyber. Or if we could get Russia to act differently in Syria or differently in Ukraine, we're not going to rule out those conversations. So again, I think we've got to approach American foreign policy from the realistic point of view with the Chinas and Russias of the world, probably with the Irans and North Koreas of the world, that yes, we criticize them where we see things we find morally offensive. But at the end of the day, our ability to influence their domestic trajectory is limited, one, by our lack of influence, and two, by the fact that we have other interests that on occasion have to take precedence. So to frame this that if, for example, again, something were to happen to Mr. Navalny, again, don't get me wrong, it's the last thing in the world I obviously want to see. The idea that the entire relationship hinges on that, no. That might be an unfortunate thing to say, might be controversial, but we do not have that luxury in an age of nuclear weapons and cyber weapons and everything else. 
that is not the way to frame American foreign policy. We ought to try to influence be his behavior in that realm, but we ought not to make the entire relationship hostage to it. Well, look, I think there's a, several other dimensions here to factor in. The first is why is Putin so fixated on Navalny? Because Navalny is the first time he's actually had some real opposition and he's been building up over a long period of time. And Putin, even if he doesn't stay as president until 2036, because he has to still put himself up for election, right. and by that time he'll be 84, and who knows you know, what kind of health he'll be in, he's still very strong. But I mean, you know, as a get on in time, we all know it's not quite as you know, easy to pull off these kind of feats of masculinity or uh, you know, anything else you know, as it was uh, in the past. But you know, Navalny has managed to get traction with people because Navalny is also a populist politician. Navalny is the new generation, and he's also the real deal. He's handsome, he's young, he's charismatic. He's a lot of things that Putin isn't. He's tall. Putin is, you know, somebody who really does, you know, kind of always take the measure of people. And, you know, if they've got something that he hasn't got, he has to try to eliminate them. And Navalny is playing in the same space as Putin, the nationalist Russian space. He's not saying, I want to bring down the state. He's not Lenin talking about, you know, a revolution. He's not Yeltsin trying to pick apart the Russian Federation from the Soviet Union, you know, back in the day in the 1990s. He's basically saying, I just want these crooks and swindlers, these thugs out of the Kremlin. I want to be president and I you know, want to see a change of guard. That's very threatening for Putin because he's not some kind of liberal, you know, pro-Western leaning guy. So there's that. He is a formidable force. And as Richard says, Putin's not going to be swayed by anything we say to save his own skin if he has to basically get rid of Navalny. We also have the dilemma that it's not just Russia doing this, of course. We see China, how many, you know, opposition figures are, are in jail or have been killed or have died. We see this happening in Iran and, you know, you name it around the world where we have a dilemma. And we often look at Russia and say, well, we can't talk to Russia, but we've talked to the Chinese. We have to talk to the Iranians, one way or another, we're going to have to talk to the North Koreans, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So we have that kind of set of problems. The other thing is, again, we can't do this all alone because I think Russia wants to, or Putin wants to pull us into this idea of a kind of a, a US-Russia standoff like it was during the Cold War and have kind of proxy fights and everything as well. And we have to make sure that whatever we do in this regard is still done collectively with you know our NATO and other European and other international allies, be it the Japanese, the Indians, you know, and everyone else as well, because the message has to be to the Russians: look, you're being a spoiler that's spoiling things for everyone else as well. It'll only be change of mind or strategic thinking or tactical thinking, even on the Russians, if they see that others are pushing back as well, not just if it's the US. I mean, in a way, they want to lure us into this kind of perpetual fight, and we have to try to resist that. Well, I was just thinking in terms of Mr. Navalny that there is just this immense element of unpredictability because clearly Mr. Putin wishes him harm. But because of this great physical harm that Mr. Navalny has already suffered, it's absolutely unpredictable whether he will continue to, to survive these conditions. And I think that it could somehow wind up provoking a confrontation that was perhaps not intended at that very moment, but at any time he could deteriorate. So that's very worrisome and very unpredictable. Hey, Harry, can I just build on 30 seconds on something Fiona said, which is really interesting, which is that Mr. Navalny is not a liberal. He's a competitor for Mr. Putin. I, I tweeted once that one thing we might want to think about is giving him the Nobel Peace Prize because he's in favor of peaceful political change and he, he deserves support. And I was really taken aback by the reaction on Twitter. Well, always a mistake, I realized, to uh, react <laughs> right. to Twitter, yeah. where so many people were upset because they were highlighting certain positions that Mr. Navalny had taken over the years. So even if he were to gain power, we're not necessarily looking at a totally liberal Russia in terms of Ukraine or other types of engagements. And I thought it was quite interesting that, uh, again, it reinforces my sense that we need to be very careful about concerns about simply democracy promotion. It's a great point. All right. It's now time for our very first A Spirited Debate, brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thanks, Harry. Today's spirited debate centers around a recipe for a timeless cocktail from the 1800s, the old-fashioned, where the question still stands whether to use rye whiskey or bourbon. The original recipe calls for bourbon, so we've already scored one point for bourbon there. 
As for the specific brand, the rule of thumb is if you wouldn't sip it by itself, it has no home in the glass of your old-fashioned. So our bourbon of choice is Chestnut Farms, both for its aromas of spice, oak, and clove, as well as its price point around $60. In our other hand, we've got rye whiskey, which introduces a peppery bite that's a little bit spicier and less sweet than bourbon. Personally, I'm leaning toward First Call's Kentucky Straight Rye Whiskey with its blend of vanilla and smoke and just a hint of citrus. Again, if we take a note from history, we learn that the original recipe called for sugar. It was actually first defined in print as spirit, bitters, sugar, and water. So you could definitely supplement the less sweet rye option and use simple syrup instead of a muddled sugar cube for a balanced twist. The jury's still out when it comes to a verdict in the rye versus bourbon debate, but we do know this. Whichever one you go with, you'll want something at least 90 proof or higher so your drink stands up to dilution from the melting ice. From all of us here at Total Wine & More, cheers to bourbon and rye. And remember, always think interesting, drink interesting. Thanks to our friends at Total Wine & More for today's A Spirited Debate. All right, let's move back 90 miles from our shores to Cuba, which would always in the past have been very linked to Russia. Thousands of marchers took to the streets earlier this week to protest a lack of food and medicine. The country's in grave economic crisis. So let me stick with Biden. I I wanted to say that I think a lot of people were taken by surprise, and I wonder if the U.S. was. But to cut to the chase... The U.S. immediately comes out in favor of the protesters. And I just wonder what the calculation is here. Would the U.S. actually welcome a fall of the government as you see it and that instability in our backyard, possible unintended consequences, or are they intending to play a more nuanced game to loosen things up but actually not topple the regime? Look, this was spontaneous. I saw zero evidence that this was predicted by by anyone. Including in the State Department. Yeah, I, th- I think this came out of nowhere. And it's frustration over food shortages, medicine shortages. There was a political dimension to this. It's a post-Castro leadership that doesn't have the same legitimacy and charisma. You have a president who was essentially born after the revolution. So this is now the institutionalization of communism, the equivalent of China beyond Mao and Zhou Enlai. There's that. The administration obviously speaks out for two reasons. One is this general preference for democracies for good reason. And second of all, given the domestic politics of it, let's not be naive here, obviously, Florida and New Jersey Mm -hmm. and other places. I think the administration would be willing to risk, to take your point, Harry, instability or uncertainty if they actually thought it was a stepping point on a path to a post-communist Cuba. Absolutely. It's hard to imagine things being much worse. And I think people would be open to it. The problem is we don't have very many tools. And if we turn this into a U.S.-Cuban confrontation, that's exactly what the regime there wants. They want to basically say, we are defending the patria against these terrible Americans. So we've got to dial it down. I was shocked the other day that the mayor of Miami talked about using military force. I used to teach something about uh, the Bay of Pigs. I've never (laughs) done that. Didn't work out so well. I find it uh, extraordinary that people would would say these things. The problem is we don't have a lot of tools. What's so interesting is we should let this play out. Now, maybe we could help things like internet access certain types of resources we could help reach the uh, opposition. We ought to maybe try to make life uncomfortable for the regime and say, hey, we would relieve you on this or that sanction or policy if you got out of Venezuela and stopped wasting your money there, or if you took your foot off the throats of the Cuban people, life could be much better. So I'd be totally comfortable with that. But at the end of the day, this is really a dynamic that's really very different in Cuba. And it's exciting and it's interesting. And I actually think we would be smart to give it some space to breathe rather than try to insert ourselves into it. Laura, let me turn to you on this for a second. Presumably then, if you agree with Richard, that means resisting the growing chorus, and it really is growing. You have Bernie Sanders and many congressional representatives, all kinds of journalists calling on the U.S. to end the longstanding trade embargo. I just wondered about your thoughts, falling on to his point of giving it space to play out, and in particular as it concerns the push to change or eliminate the embargo. 
Well, I would certainly agree that there are so many downsides to what would be seen as an overly forceful intervention. But something like easing the embargo, that might be something that could actually play out in a more positive way, as opposed to some of the options that could be very dangerous and actually play very much into the hands of those who are blaming the U.S. for everything. Just to add to Richard's point about being careful about how things play out. And I think, you know, that Laura's sort of suggestion of thinking about relieving the embargo is one of the more positive things one could do if you wanted to take some kind of action. But, you know, we have a long history of, in a way, inadvertently taking credit for these kinds of grassroots spontaneous movements that then lead other countries, Russia, China, you know, and others, to think that we are in the process of intervention or we're orchestrating these. I mean, yes, the Bay of Pigs we did. We, we, we had a little yes, bit to that, do that in the past, really right? Yeah. But, you know, every, you know, kind of so-called colour revolution that emerged, you know, in the 2000s in Georgia and Kyrgyzstan and then later the Arab Spring, the Russians and everybody else were convinced that we set these off when we didn't. Because we started talking about them in the way that kind of Richard is alluding to. And the consequence was really very negative, honestly. It became that everybody started to see these as proxy engagements with the United States. I mean, you saw the Russians and others intervene. In the case of the Arab Spring, there was kind of like a, a general kind of shock that we would topple or be open to toppling someone like Mubarak. There was always a kind of a, an expectation that we were in charge of something when we weren't. And I speak from experience of seeing it close up in Venezuela when we got pushed to intervene, you know, more recently under the Trump administration, that was a complete botch up as a result, because those memories of all of those previous invasions and interventions in Latin and South America, you know, be it Haiti, Panama, Cuba, and everything really kind of framed what we were trying to do in ways that was extraordinarily detrimental. And what's happened in Venezuela? Maduro still in place, and the Venezuelan people are even more impoverished than they were before. And the Russians moved in, along with others, to kind of keep Maduro propped up because they were convinced we were going to invade because they kept referring back to the, the Bay of Pigs and everything. And I think, you know, Richard's point is let this play out for once and maybe do something a bit more positive, but keep your hands up here so that people can see <laughs> this gonna... isn't us. This isn't us. You know, we're not doing this. And you raise a great point I hadn't thought of, which is this point of memory, because we do have this terrible image in, say, parts of South America, and then a generation grows and it sort of fades, and then we come back and we are again the, the bad imperialist uh, USA. Laura, I wanted to go back to you on, well, I, it's neighboring geographically, is it neighboring sort of geopolitically, and that is Haiti, some not quite 400 miles away, where the president, Moise, was assassinated last week, and there's this now power vacuum, and you have Haitian officials picking up on Fiona's point, asking for U.S. military assistance, and it's pretty clear that the Biden administration wants you know, no part of it. Is that the right kind of thinking? I mean, it seems like they're from the get-go on the Dr. Haas plan of letting it play out or certainly you know, not sending uh, military in and risking another Afghanistan. Do you see that as the sort of easy call and one that's going to continue? Well, I think the two situations are, are similar in the respect that it's so much easier to do harm than it is to actively help. I mean, there are just there's just a whole universe of, of ways that you can make things worse and just such a, a limited set of options um, when you're thinking about how to make it better. So that I think is probably something that, that those around uh, President Biden are, are thinking about very very seriously, and especially against the backdrop of things like the Afghanistan withdrawal and even events like the confrontation between Israel and Hamas yeah. of a couple of months ago, that there are just so many ways that you can really stumble into something terrible <laughs> and so few ways that you can actually work to uh, that you can work except behind the scenes, perhaps, to to improve things. There should be a name for this principle. I, w I wonder if there is the, the many ways you can do wrong and the few, much fewer ways. Maybe it's a, a kind of a Hippocratic uh, oath for foreign policy. No, look, that's true. Yes, the, the Hippocratic oath applies. First, do no harm. It doesn't necessarily, though, mean doing nothing. In places like Syria, at a certain point, we did nothing and we did a lot of harm. It's like most rules, it's it's the application that gets interesting. The situation between Haiti and Cuba seemed to be fundamentally different in one way, though. 
in the sense that in Cuba, you've got too much government, and in Haiti, you don't have enough government. And the real challenge for the administration is how do you deal with what is essentially a failed state? The idea, I think, of unilateral U.S. military intervention is really terrible. It's not clear to me uh, how you would ever get out. And very quickly, liberators become occupiers, in my experience, pretty quickly. And I'd be open to the idea of some type of a regional effort that would provide a security backdrop where then some real nation building could take place. The last time this happened, Brazil took the lead. That was a very different Brazil, though. It was a very different Mexico at the time. The region has become much more populist. I think is much less inclined to act responsibly. I see a very little evidence the UN would do it, but that would be another way to do it. But look, this is not an easy fix. You're, you're talking about a generation. And by the way, we've been involved one way or another various times in Haiti quite extensively, and we have very little to show for it. We should have no illusion. So I think for the Biden administration, this is tough. The last thing they want to see is a wave of immigration. That's become one of their real vulnerabilities, given what's going on along the southern border. They don't want this to exacerbate that situation. But there's no good option here. And to be perfectly honest, and I certainly don't think there are serious unilateral options. So I would be consulting very hard with selective countries in the region. I'd be talking about it at the UN. And this is not unique. I'd say one last thing. This is a failed state. That's just a fact of life. You have a government that can't fulfill the basic obligations that governments are meant to fill within their borders. Lebanon has serious parallels to this. So too does Yemen. So too does Libya. We can go around the world. And the question is, what do we do about these countries? And there's going to be more of them as a result of COVID and climate change and other challenges. And right now, I am struck by the lack of uh, capacity that the world has and a lack of will to deal with what is becoming an increasingly frequent problem of failed or failing states. And of course, it complicates things that Haiti is the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere with this kind of history Richard outlined. I just want to talk briefly about the Biden administration's vaccine distribution efforts. It seemed at the G7 when we were last talking foreign affairs, at least with Fiona, Biden had a real goal of reestablishing the U.S. as the leader of the free world. And not every country seemed so ready to sign on. But now we have the kind of pilot project. Just one quick question here. You know, you mentioned India not long ago, Fiona. You know, India now has the worst COVID to date, over 400,000 new cases a day. We want to do half a million doses, but it, we're told it'd be 11 billion to really fix the problem. Have we bitten off more than we can chew? And what consequences might it have for Biden's plan to reassert the U.S. as a global leader if we can't really make this a success? Well, you know, I think this ties back into what Richard was just saying about just the shocking lack of capacity for any kind of international collective action that we have. It's not just failed states that we're contending with, it's just failing institutions. And that's, of course, obviously a consequence of <laughs> the inability of even major players, talking about Brazil and Mexico, you know, Latin South America, that uh, would have been major players in the past. And every country that we start to look around at, you know, with a, a few exceptions, and maybe that's those are the countries that we're actually going to need to look to, the Finns, the Swedes, <laughs> right. the Danes, yes. the Dutch. We're all moving you know. to Scandinavia. That's yeah, the I think, line. Yeah, well, then, uh, New Zealand, South Korea, you know, there are countries that are actually maybe able to get their back together in the pandemic because they've been able to get collective action together and they're act together domestically because they're not populous countries. And I think that the United States is actually showing in itself the major dilemmas. You know, Richard was saying before we have to be careful about pitting democracies against uh, autocracies that are actually more autocracies than even authoritarian systems because we're talking about personalization of power. But we're having our own struggle with that at home. Biden is trying to depersonalize power. You know, he said himself he's trying to bore everyone to death with policies and programs and things like that and is apologizing for it. But we still have Trump and everybody else in the wing who wants to personalize power again. And they are deliberately blocking collective action as a result. And if the United States can't overcome the anti-vax movement, which is being promoted by leading figures in the United States, governors and members of Congress and the Senate, how can we possibly contend with this internationally? And, you know, internationally, having a vaccine is seen as a privilege in many countries. It's, it's what people want. They want to get vaccinated. And yet we have you know, a large proportion of our population is saying, hell no, over my dead body, which it will be. We're kind of engaging in a death cult, you know, where the rest of the world actually wants to get vaccinated. And we have to think of some way of grappling with it. So maybe the United States isn't, you know, the best leader here. 
So how can we, it gets back to, you know, what Richard's think it should be, and we've got a big, large proportion of our population is pushing forward, but how can we act with others to get this done? What countries are actually making, you know, some headway, some success here in being able to talk to their populations about the importance of basically counteracting this deadly pandemic? Because look, if we can't succeed on the pandemic, we can't succeed on anything. And we've got climate change, we've got all these other larger global existential threats to deal with here. But we have a remarkable lack of capacity at both the country level and also at the international institution level. So we've got to be creative here. We've got to get outside the box and thinking about how can we create coalitions, maybe within and across countries, to basically get this done. Because it may not be the case that one particular country like the United States can just take the lead and certainly can't take the lead alone. Yeah, I detect that as the common theme in so much of what you're saying, Fiona. We're nearly out of time. Lauren, do you have any quick thoughts on this point? Well, I agree that historically, I think we're going to look at the world response to the coronavirus pandemic as a collective failure. I mean, despite some elements of success. And I think we also are going to see as this pandemic does continue to go on and flare up in parts of the world, the degree to which COVID is an accelerant for all kinds of social unrest, in addition to the human suffering, of course, it's just going to be such a complicating factor on such a large scale in terms of how countries deal with one another and with their own internal problems. That's a really great point. It's almost a reordering event on the scale of a war. All right. We are unfortunately out of time in a great Great, great discussion again. So we only have a minute for our final feature of five words or fewer, where we take a question from a listener and each of us has to answer in five words or fewer. Today's question comes from Laurel Matier, who asks, will you be watching the Japan Olympics starting in a couple weeks? No spectators, the weird mask policy, etc. Is this going to dampen your enthusiasm if you normally have one? Anyone, five words or fewer? I will watch, sadly. (laughs) Richard? I will watch, not go. (laughs) Nobody can go. It's against. Fiona? Same here on TV. (laughs) I'm saying won't have the same sparkle. Thank you very much to Fiona Hill, Dr. Richard Haas, and Laura King. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. You can check us out on the web, TalkingFeds.com, where we have full episode transcripts. And you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post discussions about special topics exclusively for supporters. As I've mentioned, we've now posted a full-length episode with Eric Swalwell and impeachment counsel Barry Burke and Dan Goldman for all to listen to for a week, after which it will return to normal subscriber-only status. Submit your questions to questions at talkingfeds.com. Whether it's for five words or fewer or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jennifer Bassett, Rebecca Lopatin, and Matt McArdle. Our editor is Justin Wright. David Lieberman and Rosie Don Griffin are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Olivia Henriksen and Abby Meyer and our consulting producer, Andrea Carla Michaels. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time.